Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Conference. We've got a Harvard alum with us today. So excited to have Nan Balchandani with us, who is CIA's chief technology officer. So I think just the fact that you're here shows how the intelligence community and DOD are just trying to work together on these issues, which is important. Um, Nan has seen the issues we talk about from many angles. He was a tech executive, spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, um, then got recruited by DOD to be the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center's Deputy Director, then Acting Director for a while. And CTO, yes, CTO. CTO, yes, yes. And um, now over at CIA. So, Nan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for having me. This is um, a long time in the making, and I'm finally glad we're pulling this off. It's uh, it's awesome to have you here with us uh, as we're out looking over the Charles River, but even more uh, interestingly, have, you know, hundreds of folks, students, uh, DOD, intelligence community folks all kind of thinking on these issues. But uh, my question to start off is a little bit of, you know, how does somebody wind up being cute? You probably, were you the, were the kid always like uh, rebuilding your parents' refrigerator or something? What, what did you, how did you get, how did you get to this? And was it even something you had ever thought was in the realm of possibility? No, great question. Well, first, first thing off I'll say is I, I actually, don't consider myself to be Q. I think that title would probably go to the uh, director for science and technology, uh, who uh, I think I'm, I'm not going to name him or out him, but uh, he's he's the current Q. Obviously, so uh, you're R. I'm R. Prime or Q star or something, but I'm definitely not Q. Although it is kind of you know I'm in the Q like area in the alphabet. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you just can't plan your life uh, to that level of detail and and uh, and precision. Um, I knew, uh, so I started my career back in Silicon Valley um, back in 1991. I worked at Sun Microsystems, have a computer science degree undergrad, worked in chip design, worked in compiler design, and always knew that I was going to do startups. My dad did startups. Uh, he was in the semiconductor industry, so I was predisposed to the tech space. Um, I also knew that I wanted to be in government in some form at some time in my life. But, you know, being a, a founder and a CEO of multiple tech companies, you're executing two inches away from your nose. Is the product working as the investor base, competition, getting the getting payroll done in two weeks. So you're never thinking big picture, big, big things, et cetera. And my path to, um, uh, you know, I, I, I did four startups back to back and it was that was an intense 25 years and didn't literally lift my my head up. And then the fourth one, when we sold it to, to Citrix, uh, I finally stepped back and I was like, well, time to have a, have a midlife crisis. <laughs> and like, what is my like unfulfilled life dreams that I hadn't really worked through? And working in government and public service was always something that that I had in mind. So I went and quickly executed on sort of using, um, uh, getting two master's degrees back to back as a way of pivoting. 
And so a year at Stanford at the business school, um, got a master's there and then the Harvard Kennedy School. What was exciting was the, the business school side of it was interesting because it gave me a lot of formal uh, structures and thinking around stuff that I had basically been like basically ghetto engineering yeah. for 25 years. Yeah. Inform your scar tissue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, oh my God, I finally learned accounting <laughs> properly or corporate finance. Uh, these were all cool things. I love the theory of kind of the practice behind it. Uh, the Kennedy School was awesome because it took me completely outside of my comfort zone. As a tech person steeped in tech and doing startups, the idea of sitting through you know, Graham Allison's class or, or Professor Ash Carter's class or Eric Rosenbach or Nick Burns, who's our ambassador to China now, these are like incredible professors teaching about geopolitics and other things. And for me, uh, this intersection between policymaking in the government and world events happening and this entire pivot that we as a nation are going through, the U.S. government is going through, and this collision between tech as the battlefield and then policymaking in government and geopolitics to me is just absolutely super exciting. But in a, again, a million years, never thought I'd end up at the Pentagon with General Shanahan at the Jake. And, uh, and nobody expects a call out of the blue from the CIA. <laughs> Typically, it's not, not in a good way. Not in a good way. <laughs> well, this was a good call and uh, a surprising one. But uh, Director Burns and the senior leadership team at, at CIA really wanted to go, I think, bold. Uh, not that I want to call myself a bold choice, I don't know, the right choice at the right time, but, um, but they really wanted to go unconventional. Uh, the other thing, um, you know, so, so really um, stepping back, right? I mean, Director Burns, when he first came on board, sat down and analyzed and thought about, and him along with the senior leadership team, really dispassionately, like, what are we doing as an agency? What does the next 75 years look like? How do we think about this? And the conclusion was quite simple, which, you know, everybody sort of knows, but the simple strategies are the ones that really are, are the best ones, right? There's a giant pivot from CT, counterterrorism, to great power competition. And the fulcrum of that pivot is technology. And it's only that technology is a multi-trillion dollar industry that has powered productivity and world change for the past 20 years. It was an obvious piece, but this is where that intersection of now the China and GPC side of it versus and the tech side were the two big ones. So this resulted in the creation of the China Mission Center, which was the first thing stood up. Uh, the second was uh, T2MC, which is the Technology and Transnational Mission Center, which got stood up. And then the CTO position to support some of this pivot work was my role. And so Director Burns basically was check, check, check. So now that we've organizationally set up all the right pieces, chess pieces, now the game is, is executing this pivot. So we're, we're, at that, we're in that stage of the storyline. I've been on board nine to 10 months. T2MC has been stood up about a year and then the China Mission Center. So we're early, you know, we're, we're in the storybook, in the storyline, but we're a year in the storyline now. And, and I think the reorganization was almost a signal to industry to be a bit more approachable or as to the importance of high, the high tech sector and the like. Can you talk a little bit, Nand, about your priorities as CTO now? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I'd say, Lauren, um, that's the exact point. That signaling is so important. Um, you know, the fact that, and we don't think of it internally as a reorg in as much as this is additive, right? So we added mission centers. So yes, it's taking on a broader role, but it is truly the point. It's a signaling function as well. Um, the signaling sort of how, how's it going and what my priorities are. So we're a super small team at the CTO function. So um, uh, the C-level functions, which report into the director, so I'm a direct report to Director Burns in that, we serve everybody, right? So we've got five directorates and 11 mission centers. My job, and before even I got here, it'd be surprising to everyone to know that the CIA does tech at scale and has done it for 75 years. You go to the museum, there's incredible tech there. Our teams are executing at depth and scale across the world in a global 24-7 environment. So my coming on board is not to come in and grab the steering wheel from everybody. Everybody's doing great work. But agency work is incredibly operational. We're an operational team. So what happens though in an organization like that, because culturally when you're so operationally focused, you're executing two inches, five inches, 10 inches away from your nose. You do need a second set of people to come in and think through the changing world. What does the world look like two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And given the size and scale of tech and the importance of it, you have to have players on the field that are playing different roles and different pieces, but complementing each other. So uh, the, we've been trying to come up with analogies at the CTO function about like what we do and how we do it. So there's this famous commercial, which is the BASF commercial, right? It's, we don't make the things you buy, we make the things you buy better. That's the CTO role. I don't own anything, I don't run anything, I don't operate anything, but I do feel responsibility for everything. And so what I've been doing is with each director, with each mission center, the other side of it is because of the small scale of our team and, you know, we're highly, we're, an, we're, we're a super, super small resource. We have the, the concept that I've taught our team to work through and what I want us to work on is all the stuff we learn about in finishing school in the Valley, right? In tech companies, the core of it is scale and leverage, right? So if we're not executing at in the projects that we take on that generate 10x leverage, 100x leverage, 1,000x leverage, 10,000x leverage, we could be the cat chasing the laser pointer all day long. The beautiful part about the, the agency, by the way, the stuff that I get to see and do and the people I interact with, I could spend 10 years there and just have a great time crawling through every nook and cranny of every cool project and see new tech and new stuff. I mean, it is mind-blowing, the stuff that we do. And it's a, for, for a tech person like me, it's like kid in a candy store. But I'm getting paid by the U.S. government to work, not to enjoy my life. So the question is, is the projects that we, we take on are sort of very high leverage ones. So, so what are those projects? And, and some of that learning, I think, or at least point of view that I brought to the table was related to my experience at the DOD, at the Jake. So there was this concept of we need to bring this new cool technology called AI in, right? And it's all the, all the rage. Everybody's talking about it. It's so exciting and cool. <laughs> so I used to have the slide that I sort of took, used to show to the team, which is, it was, uh, it, it was the Empire State Building, which is my favorite buildings in New York. And uh, at the top of it, I had a little curly brace that said, 
this is where my uh, family thinks, this is where my friends and family think I work, which is in the cool penthouse with the view. And at the bottom, it was like, this is where I actually work, which is in the sewer and plumbing work. Basically, put on a hard hat, get a plunger or a pickaxe, and just start working the salt mines. What ends up happening is uh, very often people want to chase after the shiny thing, but forget the fact that if we don't have the right infrastructure, we don't have the right plumbing, we don't have the right foundation, the shiny stuff can get done, but it's going to be done in a very, very poor way. It's going to be done very, not cost effectively. It's not scalable. It's not going to stick. So unfortunately, a lot of the work is at this garbage, you know, salt mine layer. And we're bringing that level of thinking um, to, you know, with the teams who are ready and ripe, because we've got data strategies, we've got AI strategies, we're executing those. We're starting to pull those together in a fundamental way and changing the arc of how we build, deploy, and, and run software. And again, being a software person, you can bring leverage and scale to software in a way that it's very hard to bend hardware on. And we do a ton of hardware as well. Uh, on that front, and I'll, 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 I'll sort of close the thought out. So software is elastic and you can bring that leverage of scale. You can squeeze that lemon pretty hard and get those, those things if you get the right architecture, the right setup and the right commercial partners, VCs and startups and everyone. And that's a whole other discussion to have. On the hardware side, what's awesome about being in tech right now is we're seeing a revolution in, in hardware, right? It's the, so I, I have this talk that I give about kind of thinking about the research versus development, the R versus D. And the other side of it is the membrane is what I call the hardware-software divide. Once a piece of hardware or something that's deep tech gets uh, effectively digitized, it gets on the software commoditization curve. And then you can apply all of the amazing software scaling techniques to squeeze that down. So biotech right now, it's software, right? Other than the front end of the process where you're moving test tubes around and titrating chemicals and stuff, with CRISPR and other pieces, you're doing modeling and software. So now you're applying software engineering techniques to biotech. Space, my God, with the advances in material science, with the advances in, in CAD-CAM and the tooling and other pieces there, we're seeing a commoditization of space that's basically turning it into a commodity. I mean, I'm seeing so many hard space companies that it's sort of like, oh, yet another startup shooting stuff out in the space. There was a company we saw the other day. Literally, you go to their website and the three of us can go book a cargo like hold to be shot up into space with whatever payload we want. We can throw confetti. The three of us can just fill it up with confetti, <laughs> drop it up into space and let that stuff fall on the earth. Like that's the level of game. So it's an exciting time where even hard tech Companies building Mach 5 aircraft, like, you know, back in our days, Hondo and, and, and even Laura, you know, like, uh, we're old fogies, right? <laughs> so back in the old days, the idea of like private companies building a rocket and a spaceship and an airplane, are you, get out of town, crazy talk. So I think it's just an exciting time to be here and our game at CIA, and I think any customer of our size and scale has to be uh, being a smart customer and understanding how to set up the right environmental conditions inside to be able to pull the stuff in. Um, the, the, the phrase that I'll use, funny phrase I'll use for, for your audience here is 
there's a v, there's a, a website called uh, vcfundbylife.com. Uh, you should all should check it out. The tagline is coupons for an urban lifestyle. Basically, it's 20-year-olds living off of free coupons from VC-funded startups. Free food, free drinks, free rides, free rent, whatever, free clothes. Uh, the joke is, is like, we as a customer need to be like VC fund my life. There's so much private capital out there building all this amazing stuff. Why should we be investing in certain things that we can buy from outside? I want five of them being developed. I want them fighting it out. I want the best one to win and I want to be able to absorb that tax. So here we are. Yeah. It's a, you know, we often talk about having to shift our mindset from exporter of tech to importer. Fast Brilliant point. The, um, you know, one thing that I think happens in the Valley uh, and, you know, and in places where we've been able to operate at scale and speed is creating a great network and, yes. and really operating at network speed. Can you talk, you know, uh, the agencies had a long, history with InQtel and kind of being a pioneer and how to access a network that we hadn't accessed. I know you guys are now looking InQtel plus, you know, how do we get the rest of the, how are you approaching connecting to this giant network that seems to be expanding exponentially every day? Hondo, that's a fantastic point. Um, we're thinking about it a lot. And, you know, we've had a, I think a 20 plus year relationship with InQtel, which has been Phenomenal. And just like we were talking about in, in the other side of, uh, before was this idea of, you know, uh, the venture capital community is huge, right? It's hundreds of billions of dollars. And InQtel re represents a very special partner to us because we're able to, well, first is this, their staff and that firm understands our business really well in a way that a typical Valley firm would never understand the other thing they do is their situational awareness sort of radar is also focused on defense tech that traditional VCs may not see. So, but as we're thinking of this sort of new architectures and things going to your point, an importer of tech rather than thinking of ourselves as an, an exporter, we're now starting to think about increasing the aperture with the VCs and, and startups. Now it's a systemic, there's a hairball worth of problems that you probably know better than anybody else, Ando. You know, having having dealt with this at scale, right? You're dealing at a scale. You dealt with this at a scale of. It's a systemic problem of how we do problem definition statements. Um, our level of comfort in engaging with that, the informational uh, asymmetry in terms of us not knowing who the right companies to call, then pulling in a startup. One of the issues with startups, so it always sounds like a good soundbite is. Just go to Silicon Valley and do this work, Silicon Valley. Well, I've done four of those companies. The issue is, is that as is a company. So here's where the interests don't align, right? So let, let's get deeper into this because I think this doesn't get talked about enough. As a customer, the things that I crave, right? I want a mixture, a large mixture of stability, cost, security, things. I... I don't want my employee base to be whiplashed by technology every other day with a new thing that comes out and I shoot it at them and they got to retrain themselves and think through how to use it and then deal with security issues. As a CIO or a CISO and other people inside our organization, you want stability, you want scale, you want cost, you want security, you want auditability, you want a training, you want efficiency, you want productivity. 
That is completely antithetical to the storyline that the startup is giving, which is about disrupting, 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 right? It's the innovator's dilemma problem. So on one hand, I want to participate in the excitement of the startup world while simultaneously creating my operational excellence and efficiency. So somebody told us this to me the other day, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's probably not cool to quote Elon Musk or use an analogy. I don't know if it came from him, but the idea of, you know, you've got your launches that you're doing for NASA that you don't want to blow up. They need to be 100%, you know, accurate. You want uh, full safety. You don't want to blow up a multi-billion dollar satellite block. So you want operational efficiency on shooting rockets up. But then you've got another test pad where you're blowing shit up, right? You're, you're trying out the new engine. You're trying this thing out. And once you get it to a point of efficiency in that curve, you want to move it from left to right. You want to move it from test to operations. So commingling this idea of like operational stuff with the new stuff, we have to get very smart as a customer about understanding how to pull innovation in into the right places and the right stuff in the right time, in the right modality, yet at the same time, keeping a long range radar out about that. It's and almost as if we got to be multidextrous. Bingo. Right, right. Exactly right. And there are people, by the way, you can hire whose job is to keep the trains running on time right. at scale. And then there are people you bring in who are like out to take down the status quo. Yeah. And as a leader, you know, I'm sure Director Burns wakes up in the morning and is like, how do I keep both of these things going? And then the third one for us is it's not only pulling capability from outside, CIA, just like DOD, there's, you know, I joke, I talk about it a lot, is there's no app store for spy software, right? The stuff we do is so specialized, we can't get somebody out there. So we do have to get smart about being, becoming an integrator. We build a lot of stuff inside. We have to be great and world-class at building stuff. So many of the techniques that startups use in terms of uh, how we build software there or tech, right? Series investing that VCs do, you start small, you work your way up. Typically in the government, what happens is unless a project upfront can't scale to a billion dollars, nobody's interested in funding it because it's just not important enough because it's not a billion dollars. The point is, is that we need to get smart about this thing that could turn into a billion dollar TAM or a product at some point, but we'll start with 500K or a million and work our way up. So these are kind of like the whole innovation landscape. Mm -hmm. I hate saying that word because it almost sounds like a meme or like mm -hmm. it just sounds trite. Because innovation gets overused, I think, everywhere in government to some extent. Uh, there's a lot of tech tourism, there's a lot of innovation theater. Uh, getting it down to the basic elements, it's just like the earlier point. We've just got to get smart about doing it, and we just got to operationalize it and not create this into a big drama and theater. So, Nant, you know the pressures founders are under because you were one. And I think you're an example that we at Ben's push a lot of cross-pollination between mm. industry and the U.S. government. So it's interesting to hear your take on these issues from both perspectives. I'm curious for our listeners that are founders or companies that are trying to break into the intelligence community as a customer, what can they be doing better? Mm. What stands out to you when a company comes to see you? What do you want to hear from them? Oh, yeah. Um, so there, there's a couple of like trite answers I'll give, which is the classic stuff that we need to do. And I think this, 
at least how we're at, we at CIA are trying to reconfigure ourselves to, to increase that velocity and, and match. Uh, first and foremost is um, domain expertise, obviously, in understanding our, our needs and other things there. We are a super spooky spy agency. We're not really good about broadcasting our needs, which is terrible. Um, we're going to try to fix that at different levels of classification, starting to broadcast out what our needs are in aggregate. And based on kind of what we see and, and deal with, then we can, we can move into higher levels of classification and other works we do. Um, there is also an aspect, by the way, to this whole game, which is a lot of the stuff we do, um, in some cases, doesn't really need to be classified, right? If the three of us just decided to go build a spy agency, you know, I think we're smart enough to know like the 15 to 20 things at the core where we're going to need to go do the mission that we do, right? There's all the stuff we do for ops and things like that, which is like super deep, super specific. So that's separate. Uh, the second thing is, is that what I talked about earlier, which is currently the modality of, and this is a deeper issue, I think, a DOD issue and us issue and other issue is this, and software issue, hardware issue, government-wide, actually more of a buy-side problem, I think, just in general, generalizing it. What happens is, is uh, so let's talk about the pressures again. You're a startup CEO. Your job as a product company is to build a widget that you can punch off off a production line with zero or low marginal costs and sell to as many freaking customers as you possibly can. That's called a business, right? Whether you're making pizzas, you're making iPhones, it's the same thing. Standardization, high scale, low marginal cost, very low cost of sales, no post-customer support, right? That's like an ideal company. Um, our problem, though, is we have an incredibly complex infrastructure system where taking a widget that's shrink-wrapped and shoving it into this complex environment just doesn't work. So what ends up happening, it's the same problem we, we, we talked about even at that panel today, was the swivel chair integration problem, where I take widget A, widget B, widget C, don't talk to each other, and I take a human being and have them do swivel chair integration through a keyboard and a mouse and monitor. So what I would encourage, uh, and so, so guess what tech startups have sold to the defense department and to us? It's basically vertically encapsulated pieces of hardware, drones, you know, other pieces there. There are very few success stories of software getting sold into the model because hardware is something where you can take it, I can give it to a soldier and say, go fly this drone. That's a vertically integrated thing. It doesn't have dependencies on other things. And then the human being can call out, well, I saw this over there with my eyes, go put it into a targeting system over a radio, right? But that's crazy, right, in today's day and age. So my message to startups and even the hardware drone providers or the software folks is make your software modular, Turn your software and systems that becomes the interface into the other pieces as API calls and platforms. Give me an interface where I can give it to a soldier to pilot the drone, but make an API accessible uh, framework so I can program the drone. And now I'm trying to get royalties off this paper that General Shanahan and I wrote called Software Defined Warfare. But the basic concept is, is that at some point in time, we're going to have to build out very complex battle networks 
On the intelligence side, where we take in huge data feeds and other things, we need to run them through data processing and others. Same problem. It's all flow of data through applications and systems through multiple levels of processing down to a decision maker. Well, if startups came and said, hey, guess what? I can show you the razzle-dazzle demo because everybody loves demos and it's like cool user interface. Right. But when I deploy it, you can just program it through, through Python. Right. It's, it's, it's almost counterintuitive to the build the moat model. The way to sell is to not have a moat. Bingo. And that, and that becomes your competitive advantage. That's right. right. Your ability yeah. to integrate and yeah. sidle yourself into infrastructure. Because, you know, this idea that like this little widget is going to come and it, it's, it's, it's the one thing that you're asking for that we're going to put a human being in front of to go do. In today's day and age, it sounds crazy. It's this integration problem on the back end. So it's funny because this is my second time now on the buy side of software, right? I've been on the sell side of software. And every time I would come to a customer, I'd be like, well, here's my widget. Here's my thing. Buy my thing. Deploy my thing. I never understood, had empathy with the customer on the other side that said, I got 400 of you coming at me, each with a distinct widget. Now, human capital in places like the military or even in our place we viewed it as cheap, right? Which is sure, I'll put somebody in front of a keyboard and they're not going to quit because they're on a four-year you know, commitment. So I can have them peeling potatoes or I can have them doing data entry and it's just all the same to me. The imperative in today's warfare that we've all talked about before, which I think this whole conference is all about, is as a national security uh, group of technologists, how do we view the changing nature of, of warfare and battles and intelligence and how do we build these systems so that it's not about eliminating human in that. It's actually creating speed. Enabling. It's creating enablement for our commanders and our senior leaders to do this stuff at scale, at speed, with the right sort of cost structure and security that they deserve. Well, Nan, I know you have a busy schedule out here today. Thank you so much for sharing these insights. I think for our listeners to hear from the intelligence community is especially valuable. But again, you've spent time at DoD. Thank you for weaving in your priorities today, but also advice to folks who are trying to break in and be stronger partners. Thank you so much. This has been super fun. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.